This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 495th episode of the Hollywood Reporter's Awards Chatter Podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today for an episode recorded via Zoom in front of students of mine from Chapman University is a Kuwait-born Palestinian stand-up comedian, writer, producer, and actor. His semi-autobiographical rookie comedy series, Mo, which was produced by A24 and streamed by Netflix, which he co-created with Rami Youssef, for which he wrote the pilot and on which he stars, is the first Palestinian-American sitcom and is currently generating Emmy buzz. Since the show dropped back on August 24th, 2022, it has accumulated rave reviews leading to a 100% score on Rotten Tomatoes, fans including Steven Spielberg, and widespread recognition including an AFI award for being one of the top 10 TV shows of 2022, a Gotham Award for Best Breakthrough Series, 40 Minutes or Less, a Spirit Award nomination for Best Lead Performance in a New Scripted Series, and most recently, a Peabody Award, with The New Yorker describing its depiction of an undocumented immigrant's life in Houston as, quote, delivered with a warmth, confidence, and localism that evokes Spike Lee's Brooklyn, E-40's Bay Area, or the Philadelphia that Sylvester Stallone memorialized in Rocky, close quote. All a testament to the man behind the show, Mo Ammer. Over the course of our conversation, the 41-year-old and I discussed his and his family's real journey to America, and after two decades, to citizenship, how he discovered comedy and honed his comedic skills, accumulating mentors along the way, including Dave Chappelle, what it's been like developing with Youssef and acting on both Hulu's Rami and his own show, plus much more. And so without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Mo, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. And on this podcast, we always begin truly at the beginning, which I know may seem weird because for people who have seen your work, so much of it is uh, drawing on your life story. But just in case, you know, we have any newbies to the to the Mo Ammer story, can you tell us where you were born and raised and what your folks did for a living? Oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> well, I was born in Kuwait. I left Kuwait when I was nine years old during the first Gulf War. Ended up in uh, Houston, Texas, y'all. And it's been home since then, since 1990. And uh, my father was a telecommunications engineer uh, in Kuwait for the Kuwaiti oil company there. Uh, learned a ton from him. 
even though he passed when I was 14, he was just absolutely brilliant. I always wonder what he would think of today, just seeing the tech and specifically the phones. I think that's what he envisioned when he first became a telecommunications engineer. Like he knew that he was heading in that direction. I just wish he would have told me because I would have invested heavily when I was a teenager. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, that's my father. My mom is a homemaker and uh, a really, really talented poet secretly. You know, she, she is an incredible woman that way. And a ton of perspective is really like my guiding light. And that's it. I mean, I've been, I think yeah. that's it. Well, so you're the youngest of how many? The youngest of six. How do you think that shapes a person? Well, it's strange because although I'm the youngest, I had a completely up, different upbringing than at least my three oldest siblings because they had a a more consistent life before the war broke out. I'd say me and my brother Ahmed had the, you know, a completely different experience coming to Houston and being thrown into a culture and a society we didn't really know much about. So it was definitely a massive adjustment, but it definitely shaped and molded who I am today. So I'm very grateful for that. And that challenge of having to assimilate the wall along and just really shaped who I am today. And I'm yeah. very, very grateful for these massive <laughs> mountains that I had to climb. Uh, it's, it's really what has made me successful. Quite honestly. Now, the fact, though, that Houston is central to your comedy, you obviously it means a lot to you. Why did you guys land up in Houston of all places? And why is it so, you know, such a big part of who you are? Uh, Houston, I, I, I can't answer this. I was too young. Of why we moved here or whatnot. I just kind of went where <laughs> where your parents want to go or where you go. It's not like, you know, nine years old, I'm like, well, I'd like to dispute this choice. So, you know, <laughs> California is the best mother. You know, like it's not, it's not what happened. <laughs> I'm very blessed that it ended up Houston, to be honest with you. I absolutely love it here. Um, it is the most diverse city of America, according to Forbes. 90 languages spoken in my suburb alone. Did that happen right away? No, but gradually it did become that over time. And I just absolutely love it here. It's the fourth largest city, probably the third in population. However, it still maintains this town feel, hence the phrase H-Town, which is so lovely, you know, like to have such a, to live in such a big metropolitan city, yet to feel so tight knit. Uh, and you could tell when someone's from here or from my neighborhood specifically, there's a unique, there's just something in the water there. And it was in Houston that I guess just by chance you had your first exposure to stand up comedy. Is that, how did that come about? So I, I don't have to go back like three years when we were on our last family vacation before the war broke out. We went to Cairo, Egypt, and my father took us to a play called What Say You the Shangal, which starred the iconic Aydin uh, Imam, who is a prolific comedic actor and writer. Uh, that was my first taste of live performance. And I knew, I didn't know right then and there that I loved it. Like, this is what I wanted to pursue. But I knew that it was something very special that was going on. And I had a 
specific attachment to what was unfolding in front of me. And then three years later, war breaks out, everything going to be Houston, Texas. My brother's just trying to get me out of the house. And he takes me to the livestock show and rodeo, uh, which is a huge thing here in Houston for three weeks, massive concerts at Reliance Stadium for like three weeks straight. Uh, and uh, I saw a stand up there for the first time. And immediately I was just like, that's what I'm supposed to be doing for a living. I just knew it right away. I fell in love with the storytelling. Uh, it was so captivating to see one person on stage uh, engage such a massive audience and be so successful at it. Uh, and I was just taken back by it. And I knew immediately that's what I'm supposed to be doing. Like, you could. And you're just like nine, right? <laughs> I was 10. Yeah. I was like, just made, oh yeah. Did I even make by then? I think I was, yeah, still nine. So I just was, I would literally was like, yes, that's what I'm going to do. I kept telling everybody I'm going to be a stand-up comedian, even though I didn't know what the hell I was talking about, but I just knew that that was what I was supposed to be doing. And then when I was 14, my father passed away and I started uh, acting up pretty, pretty bad. I just not, I wasn't a bad kid. I would just like, I'd live like Ferris Bueller's day off. I would just, do things that regular kids weren't really doing. I was just like, go buy tickets from scalpers and selling fake Rolexes to make money. And, and uh, I would just like go to Astros games with my buddy Nick and we'd be on the third, you know, first baseline. Like, what the hell are we doing? Like, this is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and so just like a wild experience that way. I was just very adventurous naturally. I was always wanting to be out and meet people and, really a big extrovert and I love making people laugh and, and it just happened and then my teacher my English teacher just went pierced my heart she says how would your father feel if you don't graduate because you're heading your trajectory right now ninth grade is such a critical year you are heading towards failure how would your father feel if you don't graduate and I started to cry <laughs> like, you're cold-blooded Mrs. Reed I said I think I might have said that and uh, and I said, it'll be miserable. I come from a highly educated family. This is be a horrific thing that if I can't graduate. So she's like, don't you want to be a comedian? I was like, yeah, absolutely. And she let me do stand up in class with the caveat of I ever skipped again. She would not allow me that privilege and strip it away. And I got so excited. Next day I came in and did a, well, actually that moment, she said, if you can recite some Shakespeare, because it was English class. Uh, I said, can I make it funny? She was like, yes, of course. I said, great. And then I went up in front of the class and I killed, just reciting my <laughs> from Shakespeare, our textbook. And then the next, I was like, can I come in and do stand-up tomorrow? She's like, you have materials? I was like, I don't know, I'm just going to go write something and I'll see you guys tomorrow. Like, like walking out like I'm already a pro, it's so funny. And I came back the next day and I had a whole set and I just killed. And I just kept, she kept putting me up like every week. Let me do this fun thing for the class. And the crazy thing is, is that it really, not only did it like give me some purpose, but it also gave me something to look forward to. And, and my purpose I felt was beginning. Like, okay, this is, this is my open mic. It's a privilege. Like, I got to get the class. This is so cool. And I was just, I was doing it so regularly for, for weeks and weeks and she took me to theater arts department. She's like, this kid keeps coming in. She introduced me to Legene Kreisner, who was our theater teacher in middle school. I was just too timid to go in there. And, and she told Legene, um, Hey, this kid's been coming to my class, writing original material that I've never heard before. It's killing doing all these different accents. I think he belongs here. And Legene was like, okay, why don't you come 
in the theater and audition for us or something. I said, okay. I worked up the guts the next year, like late into the next year, my sophomore year. I did that. Um, and then the following year, I was just getting leading plays like right away. And next thing you know, I was doing like lead roles in musical theater. And even though I could sing, and, which I just more soul than singing, but, uh, yeah. but, but that's how it all happened. And it all triggered those, all those, it was a domino effect that throughout my high school career, I would just do stand up in class pretty regularly. The teachers let me do it. And then they would, like, at one point, I was like, they were, I was skipping with other teachers' permission so I can go do the, I had like, I would do like three shows in one day. <laughs> I think my, my Spanish teacher was like, getting the Fanetta, I'll never forget it. She was just like, you can come do my other classes and can you add some Spanish into it? That'd be great. <laughs> so I would just put on a little, little sports coat and I would just, uh, emulate, uh, do impressions of Chris Farley, but I would roast everybody as Chris Farley <laughs> in a small coat. And then I was doing it in Spanish. I can't even remember. It was all freestyle. It had nothing. And it was, it just killed. I would get some like information about certain kids in the class. I would just use that against them. It was so much fun. <laughs> well, so you graduate and it seems like pretty quickly there's, um, you know, a presence on the at least the Houston comedy scene. And I wonder, first of all, before we even get into how that evolved, how did your mother at that, I think at that point, you know, she's your parental figure. And as you've described her in other interviews and on your show, you know, I don't think there was a long tradition of Amher family members pursuing comedy. So how did she feel about this path that you were heading down? Uh, she didn't understand. I mean, first of all, it's an indigenous art form in America. Right. There's three. There's hip hop, jazz and stand up, as far as I know. And we weren't familiar with that art form. Certainly my mother was not. Could you even make it into a career where it's sustainable and have a family? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Could you even do that? I think any reasonable parent, whether they're Arab, foreign immigrants, whatever, would have the same feelings because it is not recommended for the faint of heart. Like you better be. <laughs> You better know that this is exactly what you're supposed to be doing and pursue it with, uh, you know, be tenacious in the pursuit, but also learning the history of it. So she didn't like it at all. She didn't like it at all. Certainly not a Muslim kid being in the clubs at seven. I was like sneaking into the clubs, basically. I would lie to them. I was telling them I'm 18, whatever I would get in there to do sets. Uh, and she just, you know, next, you know, you're in a club house surrounded by alcohol. Like this is not ideal for what you want for any, for any parent really. Right. Muslim or not thing being that young and impressionable, like just to be surrounded by a bunch of adults that are like two, three times your age in some case, four times your age doing stand up in those environments, probably not what you envision for your kid. Right. Right. So it was tough on her and I get it and I get it. And just recently, I would say like six months ago, maybe more, we're going out to lunch and I would, it would be really funny. I would come in like at two, three o'clock in the morning into the house and I hear my mom in the distance, just out of complete frustration. Cause my mom worries like, like extra, so extra. Like she can't go to sleep for like, if I'm on a flight today, like she'll keep calling I'm like mom i'm in the plane i can't answer like, she just <laughs> it's just her nature so right. so i would come home and i would hear from the distance really muffled like the gishi young which means like i don't want you anymore <laughs> you know like <laughs> just just leave i worry too much i'd rather you be somewhere I, I just can't take it like she was just so worried about me all the time 
And then recently we were in the car and I was taking her out to lunch. She looks over at me. She goes, remember all those times you were coming in at two, three o'clock in the morning and I'd be worried sick and I'd yell at you or be a little snitey. I was like, yeah, yeah, I remember those. She goes, the whole time you were just laughing at me on the inside because you had this like very clear vision and I didn't get it. I couldn't be more proud of you. That's great. It just, and I told her quite frankly, like, I don't know if I would have been as tenacious if she was just like, yeah, this is great. You should totally pursue this. And I think the, the fact that there was friction made it so much better and wanting to pursue it so much harder. Like, I think that I needed that. And I told her that. I said, I think that if you were super supportive, I don't think I would have been as tenacious in my pursuit. Uh, so I'm very grateful to her pushing back. And I would like lie. I would be like, yeah, I'm driving 20 hours. I'm literally driving 12 hours each way to make a hundred bucks at this club, but it's all about like getting in so you can come back and headline and get like, you know, 1500, two grand for the weekend, hopefully. So she didn't get that part. And she was like, how much are you making over there? And I would lie. I'd be like, uh, 300, you know? And she was like, I'll give you 300 not to go. And she's like, I want to see the money you come back. I was like, shit, I don't have any money. <laughs> so I would go and then I would come on the way back from this Little Rock, Arkansas gig. Uh, I think it was Little Rock, yeah, it was a stardom. And on the way back, I stopped in Louisiana where there's a casino and I just sat down at the poker table and just stuck in. I wasn't even 21, I just totally stuck in, just walked in. <laughs> I sat at the you know, at the poker table. I was like, I just need to get to 300. I just need to get to 300 and I can show my mom. <laughs> so I did. I sat down with my 100, tripled it, and I cashed out, went home, and I showed it to her. I was like, see? You know? <laughs> now, you, you were always, though, also, it seems like maybe – even through the beginning of the time that you're doing stand-up, I'm not sure, but there was always a bit of a, a side hustle, right? As we see in the series, right? What were some of the, was that just about having extra cash around or was that showing that, you know, you needed something to do during the day when most people are working? What was that about? No, so most of the hustle came, like as far as like selling stuff, I mean, I never stopped hustling, but working yeah. hard. AKA working super hard. <laughs> I, it was in my, it was in my teens, uh, up until I was like 18, 19, where I was selling stuff. So when my father took me to the wholesale district when I was like 12, cause he used to work his night. I sent toward the open before he passed away here. And I learned about like the trade and, and the fact the import exporting of it all in the area. And, after my father died, his my father's friend in Houston gave me a job, and there was a wholesaler that would come in, and I would get that from. So it was about like survival and about chipping in. Quite frankly, mm -hmm. you know, there was like moments where like school dances or whatever. Like I'm gonna walk up to my mom, like, hey, can you give me a hundred bucks or something so I can go buy all this stuff? She's like, what are you talking about? Like, you just that, you know, not gonna engage that. Like you had to make your own way, and, and also I was trying to contribute too to the household. So it was not, it was really like that process. And then when I started doing stand-up, like when I started really turning pro and like touring and working, that dissipated over time. But my mom forced me to get a job out of high school at 17 at a flag shop. So I was working under the table at this flag shop while I was waiting for my gracious status to come through. 
So it was an adventure. It really just like kind of sucked and I didn't want to be there. I just wanted to be doing stand up and I would constantly try to get fired. I show up on time. He was like a family friend. So I didn't want to quit and feel bad, but I was so good at my job. Like I'm such a like work hog. I could just execute everything so fast that I would just let work pile up until Friday and just knock it out. But I would do everything like 30 minutes. I'm like, this is ridiculous. Why do I even need to eat? I hated it so much. But it was a, it was a place where I bore a lot of material too. So I was kind of happy about that. But I just left. I left when I was, uh, what do you think when I left that job and I've been doing standing up full time ever since. And I guess, you know, it seems like just to note a couple of the big steps along the way, I know there was this Houston's funniest person competition where early on you finish in the, make the finals. Uh, then I guess, can you talk about it? The guy you often have mentioned and you talk about him as really like teaching you everything, you know, who's Danny Martinez. So Danny Martinez owned the comedy showcase in Houston. Uh, unfortunately, it no longer exists. Danny's good. Danny had some health issues that he overcame and he's fine. So they had to let go of the club. Uh, and he is just this incredible teacher of stand up, like just the best. I mean, he was meant to be true. So he mentored a lot of comedians that went on to be dev. For every level of success. I think Ralphie May was the most successful that he had at the time. And that was a great, like a huge thing. And then T-Shawn Shannon was a head writer at SNL, I think for like 10 years. And, uh, so many other comedians that went on to have different specials and again, different levels of success in the industry, which is like sensational. When I walked in this club, he was like, hey, you want to do stand-up? It's like this Mexican guy and me, his Arab guy, Mexican background, and me just talking in Italian accent. We just loved Italian, like these classic crime movies, and we just we just <laughs> loved New York, and we just always quoted different movies from Midnight Run to Goodfellas. We just like immediately started quoting stuff that was awesome. And he was like, so you want to do stand I was like, yeah. So you, I went in this club the following week, put me up on a Thursday night, uh, because that's what you do, like the off Thursdays and Sundays. When if you're not like seasoned, you go up until he gives you the weekends. That's a big deal. So I went up on a Thursday, and he uh, he saw me, and he took grabbed me right away, took me outside of the club, and said, "Look, you're gonna be my last student. I've mentored a lot of people that went on to great success. If you listen to me, he literally mapped out my whole career." He says, you're going to be very successful. You're going to be on television. You're going to tour, doing stand-up all over the country, all over the world. And uh, you're just going to go on and do this, this, and that. And he just, like, literally mapped out my whole career. He goes, only if you listen to me. If you don't <laughs> listen, he said, I'm not going to waste my fucking time. And he says, it's going to take you 20 years for your overnight success. He goes, I said, 20 years? I said, okay. I just looked up and I was like, that sounds reasonable. <laughs> so what I what a psychopath, right? Like how much you love stand up. Like he's just like, yeah, that sounds right. Sounds good. Uh, he said, it can take you 20 years for true overnight success. And he said, if you listen to me, that's what you're going to do. You'll be very successful. And he goes, if you don't, don't waste my time. He goes, but I'm going to teach you everything I know about stand up. So he did. He taught me everything. I needed to know about stand-up comedy, the art form itself, the history behind it, from the old joke jokes to like 
stuff about Milton Berle to Rodney Dangerfield to like Pryor and Carlin and all these amazing like stories that existed that I was ignorant to and didn't know. And I wouldn't know as someone who's only been in the States eight years. Right. So there was a huge cultural gap that I had to catch up on. Uh, and so he, he closed that gap pretty rapidly for me and made me to help me become the standup I am today. He just was very clear about what I had to do, and I did it. I followed it like it was to the T. Like I did not mess anything up. Excellent. I'm an excellent student. I'm very like grounded in saying that. Like I just am. I take advice really well. The stuff that I know is good for me, I do it. And even if it's if I don't know if it fits me, I'll try it once at least and see how that goes. And I'll try it again if I just get stubborn and see if I was wrong, just to check myself. And I just, he just taught me everything there's to know how to command a room, how to do it, the posture, the standing, where you stand on stage, like that, you know, if you stand a certain way and people think you're weak, what they think when you first walk on stage from eye contact, mic technique, man, everything, you know, writing, let's tell you writing, I have my own way of writing, but he taught me early on, like, there's no such thing as a bad idea. Just write it down, put it to the side. That's your savings account. You don't know where you're going to withdraw from that savings account. And he's right. All those things are right. I mean, there's a there's a bit that I'm working on now that I wrote down when I was 19. It's amazing. I guess, unfortunately, a parallel is that he's saying it's going to take you 20 years to become a good comic. It also took you 20 years to get your uh, citizenship in this country. <laughs> and that's been sort of overlappingly featured in your comedy throughout that understandably and i guess i just wonder how does this work where i guess you i was looking i think it's maybe early 2001 you start touring the south of the u.s and then pretty soon after you're touring other countries all during which you don't have quote-unquote papers you you are also this is at the height of uh, you know, we're talking 9-11 happens just a few months into you starting this and people are, you've noted, you know, there was a lot of profiling and all kinds of things. So how did you even make this work without, you know, yeah. uh, documentation? Well, I had a, so I was granted asylum, but until you become a citizen, I'm stateless. I have to travel with a refugee travel document. Nobody's going to know what this is on the call. It's fine. Most of the people won't for sure. It's just like a fake ass passport. Right. But it allows you to travel. It confused everyone. I was again, it was like being tenacious and like, I need to pursue this career. And if it takes me like sneaking into a country, I'm going to fucking do it. <laughs> and I did several times. I would just get around her and I started reading like international law about, and I just informed myself as much as possible. I know it's wild. So I would check these. Uh, <laughs> it's so funny because I can't believe I did that. It's just like it's wild to me because I never thought about it in quite some time. It's so funny. Like the balls on this kid, like the gusto <laughs> on this kid. I was like 20 years old. I wasn't even 21. I was like 19, I think, when I went to Germany. And I just informed myself of the law. And anytime uh, somebody you work with the airline would get fresh with you at the kiosk or at boarding, I would just flood them with legal jargon and they would get embarrassed and they just be like, well, this guy's gotta be right. <laughs> and they would just let me on. 
And I just had to get creative. Like there was like laws that were passed in Europe. Uh, if you fly into Germany, which is the only country I don't need a visa for, then you can fly domestically into like 22 other countries called the Schengen law. So I would just fly in. And if I had a show in Amsterdam, which I would take me like a month to get a visa, I would just fly to Frankfurt, take a train to Amsterdam, just do the gig. And then just like, that's how I got around that loophole. Uh, and I was just, again, it's just like really informing yourself. It's so powerful. And it, it just, uh, it just, <laughs> and I read every fine print of my document and what it means. And I would have like extra letters. I would get like letters of recommendation and I would just act real assertive, basically American. I would basically act <laughs> as if I was uh, entitled by <laughs> right. And they would just scare them most of the time. They would just let me in. It was crazy. Uh, but it was really tough. Like the first time I did military tours was in April of 2001. It was five months before 9-11. And that experience was so, like really great and fun. And then when 9-11 happened, I was like, oh, no, there are all ghosts. I could be myself. I would say like really fun jokes, be dark and all the bad. And now it's like filtered through a different frame so it was just a very a challenge i'm not gonna lie i i cried about it a lot i was scared yeah had you always gone by mo from the beginning or were you muhammad was that anything related to kind of uh no. americanizing it no no it's just like classic hood shit like i just everybody calls you everybody has a nickname but mine was big mall was phone like it just happened it was nothing like i grew up in a really diverse neighborhood and that's like everybody like in arabic i have a nickname hamoudis hamoudis for mom so everybody has nicknames and it was never my intention to like oh i need to do this and i want to separate both because i want to hide who i am no fuck that it's contrary yeah. i would just make jokes about well, my name does and what it is. So I didn't have to like explain myself. Like I'm hiding, I'm not hiding. The contrary, I could have sold out a long time ago. Right, right. Very a long time ago. Like I did. And now that I chose the more honest and grueling path. And that's fact. I was offered a lot of roles, like potentially that I would have been very good for. It did not fit what I wanted to do artistically. Well, and it does seem like from very early on, like you're saying, you kind of, if anything, leaned into the fact of you know, the, your background in in your career, because I think it's starting in 2004 that you and these two other comedians start touring as, uh, you know, a tour called Allah Made Me Funny. Why? Uh, what was the, that idea where you're all three of you are of, I believe, Muslim background at, again, Three years after 9-11, were you trying to, were you, the idea was to make a bit of a statement or or what was that? So I'll tell you what that is. So I was performing in clubs, circuit, doing, you know, comedy clubs all throughout the South Bars, the, the, the most nightmare of scenarios you could think of. Uh, and then that's how you earn your stripes. And I, and I credit those experiences to molding me who I am today. Like, it's very important to get that ability to perform in the most ruckus environments because if you can captivate a room full of bikers or a predominantly or i would say like 100 percent black audience and you know i was never scared of them. like i was always loving it. i was like let's go do it i remember i was 19 my friend uh uh 
Thomas Webb was no longer with us, got Mr. Soul. He was like, hey, man, come work my club, Times Square. It was about T-Y-M-E-S, Times Square. <laughs> you know, and I'm talking about, like, in the hood, and it was, like, from everything, from, like, it was just the best experience ever. And everybody was like, oh, it's such a tough room, such a tough room. I would hear that at the club in downtown. I was like, man, fuck that. These are my people. Everybody's my people. Like, I want to go. I was like, yeah, if you could do well there, you could do well anywhere. It's like, I'm headed there. The only reason why it was a quote-unquote difficult room was because they're very honest. And they'll tell you exactly how they feel immediately. If you suck, they will just shout it from the audience. You have about 30. It was like our own version of Apollo in Houston. So it was just, I ran to those shows because Danny told me that's what you need to do. I walked in, I got to say, I was like, oh, am I going to be ready for this? Because they were literally booing somebody off stage at the time when I walked in. I was like, man, don't listen to this shit. I just go up and kill. And I did. I killed. Yeah. And they loved me. They was asked about me. Where are you? Why not? It's just about like being honest with your craft. Yeah, so all of being funny, I was not expecting this at all. Like, honestly, when I first heard it, I'm like, this sounds like Disney. Like, I'm not trying to be Disney. I need to be, like, the comic I need to be. Yeah. And when I found out, like, who was behind it, Preacher Moss, you know, uh, African-American converted Islam, I don't know exactly when, but just, like, he started D.C., which D.C., if you don't know, historically is a... Um, has a tremendous history of stand-up comedians coming out of there. Of course, the most prominent being, I think, Chappelle, Martin Lawrence, uh, so many others that I that I can't uh, recall at this moment. Just there's so many that came out that are just excellent comedians. So I didn't want anything to do with it. And then I found out who was behind it, and then I was a response from Chicago. I was like, oh, these are like cops, like really, that are putting together this tour. And then I started thinking like, oh man, this is like a community thing that's gonna probably blow up outside of that. And, and it'll also like, it'll allow me or force me to be in a space where I have to be clean. And Danny told me one of the most dangerous weapons you could have is the ability to be clean. And so I was like, okay, let's do it. I didn't think it was gonna be as big as it turned out as far as like an indie project would be we ended up touring like 20 countries together and doing some of the most prestigious venues together and we essentially laid down the the groundwork for comedians of our backgrounds to go off and pursue it as a normal career so i'm very grateful for that experience that at some point i had to dip out i'm like i can't i'm like it, it stuck in this right thing. right and i and when I go off and I do my regular shows, like my, I call them regular shows with actual like clubs or whatnot, I'm like a different person. And I didn't like that. And I just, I outgrew it for sure. And there were so many real things that I wanted to talk about outside of those politics. And it seems like no matter what I do, you're always specifically from Muslim background comedians are always like put in this bucket. Arab, like every every time we see a headline about me, it's like Arab uh, Muslim comedian. Uh, so like, bro, I'm just a comedian that has me background. My faith has nothing to do with this. Please stop. And it's just that's the most frustrating part. So I'll uh, I'll say this in every every interview till I fucking stop because <laughs> I respect my faith. I respect my right. faith way too much to try to dilute it by my imperfections. I don't want it to, to be mixed because we're all imperfect beings and. I believe it to be like a really precious thing, a beautiful thing. 
if practiced properly, and I just don't want it mixed with my bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> well, the person that you referenced a moment ago, I've got to follow up on because Dave Chappelle is another person who you've said sort of really has shaped your comedy. It's like 2,000 or something shows you guys have done together Probably from what more. I read. More. Yeah, we kind of like how do lost you, track. How do, you know, yeah. 2000. Where did you guys cross paths and why is there that uh, connection? So he was a big fan of All of Me Funny. His family was a big fan of All of Me Funny. They came out to our show in 2007. They meet his mom, his uh, sister, brother, and niece. They came out to the show, Columbus, Ohio. Dave ended up going up after us, surprised the audience. Of course, they went bananas. He didn't curse at all. Did a whole hour off the cuff. I think he said shit and he apologized or something, which we never asked him to do. We're like doing whatever right. we want. And absolutely destroyed the room. It was so <laughs> incredible. We all went out to dinner that night. And that was that certainly like at the time that Dave was just, you know, out of the business, essentially. Uh, and then in, in San Francisco, we were in San Francisco. What both us and I were doing a gig in San Francisco. Dave happened to be in Oakland, I think this was 2012. Okay, left 2012. We're like, oh, let's go down and say hi. And, you know, take a picture with Dave, say hi, take a picture, whatever history. We go there, we get there, and Dave's like, oh, man, two-thirds all of me. Can I get a picture with you guys? I was like, what the fuck is going on? Like, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> like, we want a picture with you, bro. Don't say that. Like, don't say that. Just felt like he was so sweet that way. And he was like, you guys want to go on? I was like, yeah. He's like, you want to come back tomorrow? I'm like, yeah. You just want to come back the day after? Yeah. And then he was like, you know, I'm doing Atlanta next week. You want to go? I was like, Yeah. That was the most notice I ever got for any Dave show. And it was just, uh, it was like, it was like, you want to go to Louisville after? Sure. When are we going? Tomorrow. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> it was one of those things. And just seeing how his mind works and his respect for the craft is such a, it's really like, it's really an incredible thing to watch. Uh, and I know that the complexities of what he plays with on stage are are just like it's like dancing through lasers or just you know I, I don't know how else to describe it he's a technician and a master of the craft and what he did was we're very different we're very different but very similar and he just uh, like really pushed me he really pushed me he was like well you gotta go you gotta go you gotta you gotta go. And he would just, anything that I might've had that made me too nice or made me like a little reserved, he just pushed me over the edge over time. And there was some pretty hefty like speeches that would happen throughout our touring years. I mean, he inspired the show. So he How told so? me, he told me we we're working at the house. I'll never forget it. We're working at the house of blues in Dallas. I remember it because uh, D'Angelo's album dropped. It was the first album he dropped in like 10 years or something. <laughs> they were all hype. And The Roots, I think, uh, produced it. Questlove and everybody. Dave came and played that music on a speaker. And I was like, yo, what's this? He was like, you're the album. Anyway, but, uh, I walk <laughs> off stage. I walk off stage. Dave goes, uh, it's like, hey, man, I love you. Man, it's so good. You're killing. If we do this to a special, we should do a short film up top. 
if you do it well, he hits me like this. He goes, you could win an Emmy. I was like, what? <laughs> it was special with a short film on top. Shit, I never thought about a short film. That sounds amazing. And then I couldn't sleep for four days. I couldn't sleep literally for four days straight. I could not sleep. I probably slept like, I'm not exaggerating, probably like four hours total. I just was obsessed. I listened to maybe a thousand tracks of music. I just kept going through it, trying to visualize what this short film could be. And then I heard Elvis Presley's track where he, you know, his remake, as he remade everything. It's, uh, that's all right. And it's like, that's all right, mama. That's all right, now. That's all right, mama. Just do as you do. But it's all right. And then I just like started seeing the whole scene. The whole, I get chills right now. And saw the whole scene. It's just like, saw my mom sewing and putting in the money and doing the whole thing and attracting this winner. I just saw the whole thing. It's like, holy shit, I think I got it. And I just like, uh, I just, every close friend of mine, I would just share with them. He goes, man, it's amazing. It's amazing. Okay. I was like, all right. And I perfected it. And I got, I told Dave, it was like, man, we're on tour. I, like, I figured it out. I figured out the short film. I figured it out. And I think Dave was just like, oh no, what if it sucks? Like I got to tell this guy it sucks. Like, awful so finally in the, on the tour bus i stopped him i slapped his speaker in front of him push play i said this is the short film push play and i acted out the scene and he goes he had a cigarette in his mouth he goes modus genius and he goes you can't do it for especially you have to save it for a tv show i was like Oh, TV show. Then I couldn't sleep for 10 years. And I couldn't stop thinking about it. <laughs> couldn't stop well, thinking about it for like four years straight. I was like writing down scenes and that's how, you know, made it up with the show. And I'll just, you know, people like to use the term like overnight success or all of that stuff. As you've said, it's a lot more complex than that. But just to give a few of the the milestones along the way, March 2017 is the late night debut on Colbert. 2018 yep. in October is that first Netflix hour-long special, The Vagabond. 2021 is the second, uh, Muhammad in Texas. I think acting, though, first entered the picture with Crashing in 2018. And then, of course, I you know, you and Rami Youssef had this first collaboration with Rami, which was from Hulu in 2019, I just, you know, because that for a lot of people was their introduction to you as a actor, not just a comedian, you know, you're the diner owner and the cousin in that show, just you and Rami though, uh, because you're, he would then be central to your show as well. I've got to ask, how did you guys, you guys went way back before even Rami, right? Yeah. Oh, way back. So I, it was 2014. We lived together, 2015, we lived together for like five months. I was going through it and I went to LA, you know, all those details, but I show, I shared with him actually the short film. And so he wanted to pursue my television show right then and there. He was like, let's do it together. It was, man, we got to make this blah, blah, blah. And I was very much focused on my standup as like the introductory piece to the world, like who I am, et cetera, et cetera. And so once I said, no, he pursued his show. Wow. So he pursued his show, which is awesome. I was like, Godspeed. Then he asked me to do a show. He always laughs. He was like, man, I begged you to do the show. <laughs> I was like, no, it wasn't like that. It's just a very, um, 
protective of ideas. I think it's very important for everyone to have their moment and not like, I just, I just think it's important to just keep those things. They're like, you know, like, like Badu said, I'm an artist and I'm sensitive about my shit. Like this is my thing. And I want you to do your thing without me like polluting whatever you have in your mind. And then when it comes down to it, let's get together. <clears throat> and that's how it happened. I loved it. So glad I did it. Love. Well, I would love everybody involved. So many friends that are lifelong friends that came out of that. I'm so happy. And then we, and then I was like, now I'm ready. Let's do the show. Let's go for it. And the fact that he, he would be centrally involved with your show, was that, all, you know, in the way that you were, you know, certainly a part of his, was that ever, how did that part of it come to be? Because it could be just your baby, right? Yeah, it could be just my baby, but that's okay. Like sharing is caring. And I think it's important to just like have the right play in mind too. It's like uh, what uh, I think Mark Cuban says this on Shark Tank. Like 90% of a, well, you can have 90% of a grape or 100% or like 50% of a watermelon. You know, like I'd much rather have 50%. It's not a buy. It's not a big deal. Like, it's not, right. And it, look, there's no, nobody's confused about whose show this is and where the, where, where it lies in my DNA 100%. You know, and having that the the from the from a business standpoint, it was the right move. You know, it was like the right, clearly the right move. And you learn through the first season. Now, while we're writing the second season, unfortunately, we have to strike, of course, uh, which I hope that gets resolved uh, soon and fairly. Mm-hmm. That that it's you know that that it everybody knows now, like to just allow me to create my baby. You know, like yeah. just like yeah, after. Yeah. After that, like, yay, just, I can do this. I'm a fish to water at this television thing. It just feels so perfect. And in the first season, you're just like learning how to ride this bike. And the second season, you just land bigger and bigger tricks because now you're just really fluid on it. So, yeah, it's great. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Well, and so season one of Mo, uh, which everybody's been catching up with over the, I guess, really dropped uh, in August of last year, um, we've talked about how far back the roots of this go, the idea of wanting to, you know, whether it's Dave's idea of this short doc or whatever. But so Netflix doesn't do pilots. They're either in or they're out for the whole thing, right? When you're pitching them the concept, just as an idea, what did they think they were getting? And Easy, easy. So, so I literally walked in with a speaker to every single network and I acted out the scene. Like it's part of the pitch. Everybody had their setup punch, and I was like me taking them right, like give them a little something visually that they can see, you know, while acting it out. And I literally played. I grabbed a speaker and I played the song, and I did the same thing that I that I shared with any of my friends. What like five years at that point prior. So uh, that's just the move. That's what I did, and it made it so much easier. People got very excited, honestly. And then as it goes on, people have a hard time visualizing what you have in your mind. Like as much as you try to explain it and put it out there, it's not easy. 
right? So you have to just trust the process, go through your checklist. If they don't get it or get it, doesn't matter. Eventually they will try to explain yourself as best as possible. And you just, you just go through this checklist. Like it's here, just that's all you have to like focus on that, like truly. And then you have to just dig deep and just make sure that you don't waver from your overall vision. And so there was some kicks, you know, the first season as you would in any first season show, there's some things that you had to power through. And we did. Um, I'm very happy that we went through those things because once we, I started editing the show with my editors putting it together and putting the music together, it's such a unique sound uh sorry uh unique sound in the show but also playlist of the show yeah like i'm a little bit blue i like blue red i like hip-hop i like blues i like jazz i like uh you know uh, arab folk music and i love like country for the stories i'm like this track is so weird like what's going on in this show so you can't if something has never been done before which is not many things have not been done before you put it together you, they don't know how the sausage is made, but once they taste it, it's actually they're very excited about it. So that's what the process was like. And you've sort of described it, I guess, in when people have asked you to synopsize, like an alternate reality in which you, Mo Ammer, never found stand-up. Is that the gist? Like what might life have looked like if it had continued without stand-up? Yeah, I, yeah that's, I get that question pretty often. And quite frankly, I don't really like entertaining that because what if it's a really dangerous? Yeah. What if like really not good for your health? I don't recommend it for anybody here. What if I did this and I did that? It's really yeah. a, a just a vacuous black hole that can leave those imprints on your heart. You don't want that. Yeah. Could I have done anything else? Yeah, of course. I'm fucking G, bro. I could just like go sell a <laughs> I said Eskimo. I could talk my way in or out of everything. Of course I would have been successful. I'm, I'm a, yeah, probably arguably been way more successful than I am today, bro. Like probably would it's not about this with a passion. Um uh, for sure. Yeah, I I believe in myself in that way. Like I feel like I I could have been successful anything I put my mind to, but it's the passion of love and the love of telling stories and wanting to paint these pictures and put them together. It's all worthwhile to me. Like if I spent my entire existence just trying to create one masterpiece, what a worthy existence. Like that to me yep. is just amazing. Cause in the end, bro, we all die. Everybody is gone. I don't give a shit how much money you have. You can't take it with you. You might try to bury me, you can't spend it anywhere. You're dead. It's over. It's a wrap. I lost my brother. He's 51. Gone. Like that. Friend, I lost a friend. He was 25. Gone. Like that. You just don't know. All you guys on the call here, don't waste your time. Think about what you want to do and love it and just go for it. If it's wrong, be honest with yourself. Check your ego. Be honest with yourself. Shift gears, because the best people know when they're wrong. They shift gears. Well, uh, I, I think that you know one of the interesting things people try to figure out who who have not necessarily heard you speak about your life before is they know it's sort of an autobiographical show, but they don't know like, all right, was Mo actually ever shot? Was he addicted to lead? Like some of these things that are <laughs> added for dramatic, it's but most not of it. Water. Yeah, right. 
<laughs> but most of it actually, what would you say? Like the vast majority is pretty, um, pretty much drawn from, from these life experiences that we've been talking about, right? Absolutely. Some of it is copy paste, to be honest. Some of it yeah. is copy paste. Uh, I definitely never had a coding addiction. I've ever like taken a sip and I'm like, this is stupid. And I just like never did that. But the only thing I took away from how uh, genius the Cody thing was just like adding Jolly Ranchers to like seven up to make any flavor you want. That was the only thing that I took away from that. But I've never been shot, thankfully. Uh, hope it never happens. Or it's yes. very painful. Uh, so I really hope none of that happens. Uh, so I, I never, never had that, but it was just that layer of complexity to the character who's clearly, uh, struggling emotionally and spiritually to add that, you know, where he starts off masking him for his pain, but truly it becomes about his emotional, not his physical. And the, but there, you know, when you talk about the parts that where they're, you know, where it really is true, um, you know, some of the most vulnerable stuff, the most powerful stuff in the show, the scene in which you confront, you know, thinking about what's happened with your father, uh, you know, when he was away from the family, when you are in the courtroom and it turns out that the judge has a relationship, prior relationship with the family. 100% real. Yeah. And for you to actually now in performance revisit things that have happened in your life is that painful cathartic how would you describe those moments i mean it's real emotion there. both it's both it's both but it's mostly cathartic for sure i mean like when i did that uh we did that scene with the priest the confessional i did not realize how i haven't dealt with it in my real life and that was a real breakdown uh and to be able to keep my composure and continue with the scene was very hard uh, and extremely challenging because it was so deeply personal. So some people say like, oh, it's just based on your real life. Bullshit. Much rather deal with something else that you just walk away from and detach from completely because it's not really you. I don't agree with that at all. I thought it was just incredibly painful. And and I got to say, anybody who does that, I would give up. I would applaud them because it's really gutsy. And it's a very scary thing to put out something that's really based on your life versus doing something that's completely fictional. Yeah. So I'm well, very grateful I did that. Good. No, it's yeah. amazing. You're, you're, uh, I think that people are learning, you know, they may have really respected you as a comedian, but they're learning, you know, there's, there's an actor there as well, which I think is pretty um, impressive to see how you handle those, especially the, the, the church scene, but Mo again drops on Netflix August twenty fourth, twenty twenty two, in just about every country in the world except like North Korea. What has it been like for you since? Just in terms of interacting with the people out in the world, but also ha ha has it opened doors for you in this business that had not necessarily been open previously? Uh, as far as like the doors being open, clearly, I mean they're they're. It's still early, but it's opening as we speak, and it's being taken uh, really seriously as a as a creator, as a writer, as a performer is really what I'm after. Uh, and so those things come with the success of the show, thankfully. Uh, so it is it is on a on a a wonderful trajectory that I hope to just keep building on and just step away from the refugee asylum, my background and stuff to feel like I've 
just given that enough air and opportunity for other people to go on and make similar stories or use that as inspiration or not. Uh, and people on the street, like it's been absolutely wonderful like, doing stand up and seeing them firsthand to see how people are reacting to this monumentous thing that's just never been done before. It's really beautiful. And they're very, very excited from all walks of life. Uh, they feel like represented in a new way that's never been done. And I am just have, have a ton of gratitude to take this work for their, the way they receive it, the way they internalize it and love me, look after me for it. Like, I appreciate that. Well, it's awesome. And thank you for taking my questions, Mo. And now uh, just to close us out, we're going to go, if it's all right, to Molly Rose first and uh, go from there. Thank you so much. Um, my question for you is you talked a lot about your English teacher and how she kind of brought you back to yourself at a really hard time in your life. And I thought that was really inspiring. She obviously put you on the path that got you where you are now. So my question for you is kind of told if you could say anything to her now, what would it be? And also how would you sort of pay that emotional support that she gave you forward for someone else? Well, first of all, I've tried to get in touch with her. It's been very hard to get in touch with Ms. Reed. I did get in touch with Ms. Broderick. I put it out there like whatever you need, if any way I could pay you back in any kind of small way. If I could do anything for you, anything, it's not for you, your grandkids, your kid, like whatever, please. They're just selfless people. You know, they're really like selfless teachers that didn't like want anything except they're doing their job and being there for me in such a beautiful way. So I have a lot of gratitude for that. And uh, what was the second part of the question? Kind of how you would pay that emotional support she gave you back for somebody else in the future. Yeah, I do that regularly. I do that. You can ask anybody that knows me. I do that all the time. You know, I keep a very, very tight, you know, I am in touch with all my friends. I grew up with since I was 10 years old. I try to support them, love them, take care of them, look after their kids, uh, friends. You just ask. I hope they would say that too, because I, I, I yeah. try to do that pretty regularly. And then I think about what Danny said, like some people don't listen. So you just got to like, you only say it once and you just got to keep it moving. But I definitely try to help as much as possible. I mean, I did that for Toby big time. It was going on to have like tremendous amount of success for the show and beyond the Transformers and stuff. He's someone who's so humble and like crazy talented and able to take stuff and go with it. But I do that all the time. I do not try to be, I try to be conscious of that. I might be too much. Some people tell me like to chill. I just, I'm really, a really big fan of tipping the hat to those that came before you. That's why I mentioned them in my interviews. And that's my way of like acknowledging them and appreciating them. Let's go to uh, Izzy, please. Izzy Betts. Hi, thank you so much for being here and answering our questions. Um, I saw that Steven Spielberg wrote you a letter saying how much he loved your show. And I want to know, are there any directors you would want to work with in the future that now you've kind of started becoming part of the DC universe, so you're in it already? And also, if you could share, if you want, maybe what the letter said a little bit, because I couldn't find anything about it, but we would love to hear. So, so <laughs> first of all, it's amazing how like maybe like twisted, but he did send the letter. 100%. It was at the American Film Institute Honors. And he sent a letter. And so our director, Slick, was in touch with his assistant. They kept, like, getting him to watch the show, letting him know. He was excited about watching. He watched it, loved it. So I never was in communication with him. But he sent the letter to Slick on behalf for, like, basically tell me and tell himself, tell Slick that he showed, he loved my performance, loved the show, how good it was. So I happy. 
and I created the show. And, um, and then it became like in the media, it's like, oh, suddenly Bo got the letter directly. And this and that. He was just saying like how much he really loved my performance. The story is so important. So attached to it. He just mentioned that several times in the letter. It was so sweet. And giving, you know, love to Slate for his work. So it was really, and it's nothing you imagine like when we're like trying to location scout because nobody's filmed the narrative stick out in Houston before and we're in this barbershop. Like, hey man, I grew up like down the street. If you could just let us film this for Netflix. What? Netflix? Come on. Don't stop like I'm serious. This is what we're doing. If I could just like, it was, we were laughing so hard. Like a year later, we got a letter from Spielberg saying, like, she loves the show. It's like, you know, this is so funny. And the world is a, is a generous place. Let's go to Liam Myers. Hello. So one thing I really admire about the show is its ability to shift between those heavier personal moments and comedic moments very seamlessly. So I was wondering in your writing process, how do you go about finding and managing that balance between tones? Yeah, so it's always been my deflection in serious moments to become funny, right? To just like to not really deal with the the sad shit and just use comedy to cope. So it was always very natural in my wheelhouse to do that, you know. And when I feel something, I feel really deeply unexplained. And so when I get into that, and that's the only way I can get myself out of it is by laughing at myself or creating a joke about something. To, to take off the edge. And then as far as like editorially, the show, how do you spread that out? You, know, you have eight episodes or half hour show. You don't have much time. You think you do, but you don't. Trust me, you don't because you're going to be cutting shit left and right. And it's like, how do you place all those things accordingly for it to have the, the, the strongest effect? In that? So that was like, that's just like, it's a, it's a constant work in progress, both on set and in post-production to get the right flow. And you hope you did it. You know, you just at the end, you're like, hey, man, I spent hundreds of hours on this. Like, I don't know what else to do, but this is it. So you got to just trust your instincts and just work so hard that, that you're just like, hey, I did everything I can. I left it all in the field. Fucking loud like it because I fucking like it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> you, just, like, you get to that moment where you feel nothing inside because you did all the work. You just not, you got to get to that space. You don't second guess things. So yeah, aside from like super minor tweaks, I wouldn't change anything with the show. You probably notice. Elijah, I feel like you've had your hand up like pretty early on and you got stubbed a little bit. So let's go to you. Uh, yeah, my name is Elijah. I'm a film production student. Thank you so much for being here. Um, I'm studying directing. And um, my question for you is regarding your show. Um, you know, you're, you have a Catholic girlfriend. You're sipping lean, you work at a strip club, but you never go like full Monty and like showing stuff. And so I'm, I'm wondering like, how was it? What was the reception like in Muslim communities here in America and also um, internationally? I didn't have any problems. I didn't have any problems because I was really thoughtful in it. Personally, I don't really like uh, nudity for the sake of nudity. Just be like, hey, we had boobies and booty. Everybody watch the show, sucker people into just for sex. It was like, the conversation was very big early on, you know, and I was just very adamant. It's like, I don't want to have this just for the sake of having it. I think it makes the point. I don't need to have women on stage, like get naked to make that point. I didn't like that person for me. And I just like, Hey, you know, when they get up and dance, because I've never been in a strip club, but I've heard 
that uh, that you know, there's like the initial dance, you know, where before they have the second round immunity. That's what I've heard. I don't know personally, but that's what I've heard. It's word out on the street. The research I've done online is what it sounds like. So it just to me it was always about the story, not about the immunity for the sake of immunity. And so um, if Muslims or anybody had any issues with what I did as being mindful of all that, then you just like, you don't exist in the real world. Like, you know, like, I'm sorry, I did my best and I can't please everyone. This is the best part. If, if there was a reason for it, then I might be okay with it. Most likely I might push the envelope and go there, but if it's gotta be a really good reason for it, not just for the sake of showing a seat like that. So even if like you notice, like even all the kissing that happens in the show in the first episode, when she says that, when she's like, kissing me, I think we're about to have fun and really get, you know, have sex or whatever. She mentions something about uh, you don't even go to the mosque. It just turns me off. You tell about the character, like, why are you doing this? You just ruined everything. You turned everything off. So it became comedic. Or when she kissed me, when she came to the wake, she came and was like, whoa, 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 you can't kiss here. Like, you know, there was like some hilarious thing that followed it or some funny thing, some quirk that was attached to it. Uh, you know, even at the at the when they went to Funplex, he gave a kiss. He was like, he was not all there. It's just like needed that love and attention. So everything needs to have purpose. You can't just have it for the sake of that. If there's passion, then I get it. You go and you dig deep into that. You don't know how far you go to. You know? So I, I don't, I don't. But I just try to be conscious of how much, how much you push into the show, what's necessary, what's just like. Having it just for the sake of having it. So I still think it's fun. It was good. And we have like other seeds that make the cut that were just like twerking for the sake of twerking. And just like seeing guys enjoy their time at the club, but it wasn't necessary. It just wasn't necessary. Just to be fair to, to Mo on time, if we can close out, Emily, uh, make it a good one to leave us on. And, and uh, thank you again, Mo, for your time. Uh, thank you so much for coming here, and um, I really like your show and really enjoy. It. Um, I'm, I'm especially interested in character, which is most olive oil that he carries around all the time. And also, I feel very strongly when mother says, "It is who we are." So I, I just want to ask: Is that like a, a mosing, or is like a a real really is like a using, or is more like a Muslim? It's a great. It's a great question. It's like, you know, uh, it's very much a Palestinian thing. It's definitely like a touchstone thing. We get a delivery every six months from our family back home of like olive oil. I used to carry it all the time, legit, but I would just get so many spots on my shirt. I just had to quit. I was like, you know, I can, obviously I'm not mastered the food outfit, so I'm out. But yeah, it's a big, big deal. And it's a, it's a symbolic thing, you know, the, the olive branch is someone's peace and also and touched on the home and meeting behind it. So that's what it's about. Ke- Kellen, Nick, I really love you guys. I, I, want you, I want to ask me a quick question. Just quick. What you got? Thank you so much. Um, again, thank you for being here. Um, I just wanted to know, so I know that um, it's the, the first American-made sitcom that features around a Palestinian family. And you touched a little bit on... Um, that representation and how it's being received now. When you were younger, um, what would that kind of representation in the media have meant to you? 
oh my God, I would have made it like it's possible, it's real, it's attainable, it's just a real thing that could happen. It was the first one I first started. Very dear, dear friends of mine were begging me that were very successful in the industry were asking me to change my name. Like, please, please, you'll be so successful. So it was very painful to, to feel that. And it just made it more impactful, like more like more of an objective for me to to reach that level and give the kid, the nine year old kid, ten year old kid who's watching television that's from a similar background, go, Oh, he did it. I can do it. Mom, look, you know, that's the idea. So was, if I can go back and talk to that little kid, man, I would tell him to invest in Facebook. Invest in Facebook as soon as possible. Invest <laughs> in Amazon and forget about all this TV shit. So I'm just kidding. I would just tell him, like, it's going to be a great road ahead and enjoy it. Nick, quick. Thank you for sticking around. So I think one of the great things about your special moment in Texas is the pacing and the nonstop energy. Contrary to that, the filmmaking process can be very slow and very repetitive. So I'm wondering what that adjustment was like for you to perform comedy in this new kind of format and bring the same presence that you have on stage. Yeah, it's all like joyful to me because I'm doing stuff that I love. So it doesn't feel slow. It doesn't feel fast. It doesn't feel like they just, it's just fun. So I don't really like look at it as like, oh, this is slow. This is that, this is that. It's just all part of the process. And I seem like, the further I get into it, the more I love it. I mean, maybe scoring the show is like one of the funnest things I did with comment and the whole team and the musicians watching it and creating music live. It's just so incredibly rewarding. Every part of it is so fun. You're just painting this picture and some of it is harder than others. And once you start, you know, getting the paint out and you start putting the brushes on that canvas, it's, it's just so addicting so addicting and every part of it is fun and you have to like accept that it's hard and you can't make good shit without going through some pain you just can't if it's too easy it's gonna suck most likely it stinks it's not to me like like you can do a ton of preparation but then like again you spend time you spend a lot of time putting your thought into it so maybe filming it is fast but that's just because you spent like five years working on it and you did all the hard work. And then when you get into filming, it's easy and fun because you know what you want exactly. So there's different ways of process. It doesn't mean like everything has to be grueling and difficult and exhausting and whatnot. It means it's going to suck, but you're really going to have to do some digging deep to get to that right, to get to that time, right? So, yeah, I love every part of it. But I'm not even, like hyping it. I really, really love it. Well, Mo, on behalf of all of us, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Cannot wait for season two. And in the meantime, of course, wish you all the very best. Thank you so much again. Thank you. Happy Bombers Day to all your Bombers out there. Thanks for listening to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate it and would really appreciate you taking just a minute more to subscribe to the podcast and to leave us a rating and review on your podcast app. And to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, where our handle is at Awards Chatter. On those platforms, we announce upcoming guests and provide details about special live recordings of the podcast that you can attend. Until next time, thanks again for tuning in. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com 
Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.